Raquel Rosario Sanchez, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me and thank you for the opportunity to speak out. Absolutely. Um, tell us how you're doing. You're on holiday break from school right now. Yes, um, it feels very different from last year. I, I have tried like, I don't know if you're a writer, but when you're a writer, it's like you never have like a break. There's always like an article in your mind that you have finished and you haven't finished. <laughs> and yeah. you just know that it's like, this, like the guild of like pending writing. But yeah. academically, it's like I had a really nice couple of months in the sense that I've been behind for a long time on a number of very important issues. In this past three months, four months, I've just been working very, very hard and just meeting every single deadline, every single panel or review that I had to go through. It went fine. Um, and now I'm in that little stage of like, I don't have any deadlines yet. You know, it's like I can actually just read a book for pleasure and like do things for fun. And so I'm trying to cherish that. Yeah, definitely. Does the guilt get worse when you kind of have a break and then you feel like you should be writing all the time on your well, own? Well, it's stuff? just that I, I'm doing the academic stuff, but it's like I'm always a writer, you know? So it's like that, that never goes away, you know? And it's like it's, you pitch to other people, you know? So it's like, oh, so I have this great idea. Can I write about it? And then they're like, yes, we love the idea. When can you have it? Bye. <laughs> Oh, I have to write now. <laughs> so it's like you impose that on yourself. I, I love writing. It's just that um, it never ends. You always know that there's another piece pending, which is yeah. fine. I mean, I like being a writer. Is there anything that you can tell us that you're working on right now that uh, is new and interesting for you? Well, I want to write about, uh, there's two pieces that I have pending for the end of the year and I want to write them before the 31st so that I can just like have a clean slate. Um, the first one is about the, the difficulties of giving birth in the, for women during the times of the coronavirus. You know, you're not allowed to have your family around you. There's all of these health measures that have to be put in place. And now we have new research saying that pregnant women could be a high, at higher risk of the health complications from the coronavirus. So I want to talk about this process. It's for a Dominican uh, outlet. I want to talk about the difficulties of giving birth in the time, during the times of the coronavirus. And then the second piece, I want to talk about, I don't know if you know about this, but there was a very famous case um, in the United States of a young girl. Her name was Daisy Coleman, and she was raped by a classmate who was older than her and that was around 2014 or something. It was a very famous case that the young woman became went public with her story and and it created a lot of societal pressure because she was bullied by her community. There was this massive targeting against her and against her family essentially because they um, they denounced, they spoke out against this classmate who was from a different background, he was wealthier. Um, and that created massive repercussions for that girl, but also for the family. And amongst them, you know, their house was burned down, the family had this history of tragedy. But the point that I want to focus on is 
the invisible toll that violence against women, male violence against women and girls has, not only on that one female person, but also on her family and on her community. You know, when you think about rape or sexual assault or, or violence, you know, you, you know that there's a toll on the woman, but there's also a toll on, on the people around her because she, there's an aspect that changes, you know, in, in different ways, even if they don't know about it, but you know that this person is something a little bit different. And in this case in particular, it's heartbreaking because they see, um, took her own life recently, that was in August. She ended up um, taking her life in August. And then her mom, who was with her through this whole ordeal, like I remember following her case since it became public and looking at this 14 year old woman and her mom who was just with her. Um, her mom also decided to, um, she took her own life as well. So it's like this entire family, there's this triple effect of destruction that comes out of male violence. Um, and I want to touch on that point, on the invisible toll of, of violence, male violence. Wow. Um, and that also connects to your PhD thesis, right? So you're, you're writing about sort of online male sex buyer communities and how they, how they talk about the women. And so tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so my PhD research is a little bit of a, um, a sequel to my master's degree, which was on the online communities for men who pay for sex. So when I was at Oregon State, I researched Punternet and UK Puntin, which originated are sort of um, online communities for sex buyers in the UK. And I was interested at that point at looking at the construction of their sense of masculinity, masculinity, like how do they think of themselves as men based on their interactions with women and based on their identity as men who pay for sex, you know? Um, so I was interested in looking at that a little bit deeper and now I'm investigating those communities at a global level because they have just um, multiplied you know, you have them in Spain, you have them in Argentina, you have them in Chile, you have them in Brazil, you have them in different languages, in Canada, all of these different communities. And it's almost as if prior to the event of like social media and forums and online communities, who did they talk to about these experiences? Because it's, it's kind of a hush-hush kind of topic. You know, you may talk about it with your best friends and stuff, but now because you have the internet and online communities, then they get to talk to people, to, to men who also want to share their thought processes as sex buyers, but who, who think that paying for sex is a part of who you are. It's like a core identity. Like for example, I'm Dominican. So being Dominican is a core of who I am and it reflects in different ways, but for sex buyers, I am exploring the ways that paying for sex has become a part of their identity as well. Is there something that you think kind of unites all of those men in the different countries that you mentioned? Is, are there similarities that are, that are striking across all of them? That's my thesis. That's what I want to know. <laughs> like, that's what I want to know. I want to know, like, what do they have in common? What do they, how do they differ? You know, and... I'm trying to be careful of like not, not hypothesizing too much about what I already know because of my master's degree or 
what I know from feminist theory because, I mean, essentially, when I start um, collecting data, you're just going to be faced with a volume of text, you know, and I want to, I, I honestly want to be open-minded about what those results could be, you know, because there's no, there's no dodgy stereotype of, there's no dodgy um, sort of avatar of what a sex buyer could be, you know, it could literally be anyone. And one of the things that I struggled when I was doing my master's degree is that I was very excited because you have all this volume, there's all this data and you can explore all, all of these features in the online communities. But then it comes to a point in which it starts affecting your, your mental health, you know, because you, you wonder, so this one is wealthy and he's paying, I don't know, 400 pounds for X sex act. And this one is not wealthy and he's paying 30 pounds for this other sex act. And, and this one works in this job and this one works on this other thing. And they have such diverse lives. There's no one common feature. They're all normal men. That you start walking down the streets and you kind of wonder. You kind of wonder, like, do these men in front of me, do they look at me the way that I am reading these men talk about other women in the online communities? Mm. Yeah, is it, I mean, is it dripping with misogyny in those? I've seen one of those websites that, you're mentioned, I think it was the Punters UK one. And you can look through all these comments about the women they buy. And a lot of them are very disturbing. Like there's, you know, things like she didn't want it. She was crying. So I don't recommend her. It's not a fun experience. Is it, you, you mentioned the toll on your mental health. I mean, is it a drag to read these sometimes? Yeah, I mean, it's, the thing that I always wonder is like, why do they never leave? You know, it's like they're, you get reviews. So they, these are review sites for women. So the way that you, for viewers who are not familiar, the way that you would review a car or a phone, that's how they review the women. Um, so some of them, I would say maybe most of them are very glowing in the reviews because the women do what they want them to do. You know, so it's like as long as the women are doing what they want them to do, then they feel happy and, and she made me feel like I was her boyfriend. And that for them, it's like, that's the big thing. It's like, oh, I felt like it was real. <laughs> it's like, no kidding, man. Um, but when the woman sets different boundaries, that's when they become not so happy. So, so a negative review would say she looked like she didn't want it to be there. Uh, you can tell that she was going through the motions. I felt like I was pulling teeth. I, was, I felt like they were taking my money. They were robbing me. And it's like the door's right there. Like you can literally leave, but they never leave. You know, it's like even when they could see some of the sex fires that I assembled, even when they could see that they're, engaging in sexual activity with a non-compliant partner that they know doesn't want to be there. They never say, well, actually, you know, I can tell that you really hate this. So here's like half of the money or here's all of the money. I'm just going to go and find someone who actually wants to be there. That never happens. It is always, it felt like a job to her. She didn't want it to do it. I felt like 
she hated me. Therefore, I asked her to give me a blowjob. And it's like, that doesn't follow. You know, it's like you need to connect dots. But they don't. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I can't recall. I look at thousands of those reviews and I cannot remember a single one in which a man just said, listen, this woman doesn't want to be with me. I'm going to go find a sex worker who is empowered and excited about this and who wants to touch me. He's like, no, it's like, I will make her touch me because I already paid her. Is that part of it for them? Is that part of the thrill? Is that, you know, maybe because they could, they could go out probably and get a partner. Maybe some of them couldn't, but is that part of it for them? Is that turns them on? I remember a statistic. I can't remember how um, current it is now, but it's like half of them have partners. So, so you have to wonder, it's like, okay, so why are you, you just have to wonder, you know, it's like you have a partner, but here you are paying a woman to do sex with you. And that's a massive tangent onto like the motivations behind paying for sex. I think that, I, w I wouldn't speculate about whether it is a thrill for sex buyers to be with a non-compliant sexual partner but I do know based on the research that I did that the one thing that they wanted the most was something called the girlfriend experience which is the, an illusion of an empowered sex worker who is so excited to be with that one sex buyer like that's the one thing that they all raved about like if she if she made if she pretended well enough to be very interested in them then that to them was just like heaven and the girlfriend experience for viewers who are not aware is sort of a series of sex acts which involves you know kissing and touching and oral sex and then vaginal sex um but it had to be done in a particular way like it had to be performed with like tenderness or care and, and there had to be some sort of emotional link so for the sex buyer it's for the sex buyers is I am paying for one hour or I am paying for an hour and a half or 30 minutes. And I am expecting this woman to pretend to be my loving, very sexual girlfriend for this one hour. But if you look at it from the perspective of the woman, imagine she has five clients or 10 clients that day. You have to pretend to, to perform that same throw over and over again with different men, you know, with, with men who maybe you get along really well, but also with men that you really don't get along really well. So it's sort of about commodifying experience, commodifying the female experience that you want to get from that woman um, in a way that doesn't take into account the toll that that might have on her. You know? mm -hmm. It's so interesting hearing you say that after looking through thousands of these, you you can't think of one where the guy said, you know, let me just give you the money. I pity you or something like that. I want to give you the money and leave because I can think of a handful of movies and books already where that's the plot, where the man does exactly that. He goes to see a prostitute and then he feels bad for her. Like, I mean, Taxi Driver in the movie is one. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, Dostoevsky's book, Notes from Underground, the man does exactly that. He goes to a prostitute and then he sort of, he's going to rescue her. Then he actually ends up betraying her. But, um, or like the pretty woman sort of plot. 
is that something that you come across as um, sort of like a myth? There's, I mean, people call it the happy hooker myth, I guess, but how does that uh, fit into the reality? I remember a lot of reviews that I read where the men could tell that the woman was uncomfortable or that she was upset. And instead of leaving, it's like they did it as a form of punishment. You know, like, I can tell that she was very pissed at me or... Like, I remember this one guy and he was upset. Like, like, essentially, they get upset if they see that the women are poor, that they're doing it because they have no other options, that they hate that, tend to hate that. So, for example, I remember this one man and he was talking about, you know, this woman barely spoke English and she had her son. He was telling, she was telling him about how she was only doing it because she had a 10-year-old son who was in X country, and that's the only reason. Like, that story, they hate when the women tell them the story of how they got to that position. But instead of sort of saying, you know what, that's awful. Here's the money. Instead of having sex with me, like, here's the money and buy something for your son. It's like they... It's like... The response would be, I could tell that she was really upset about having to do the whole thing. So I decided to ejaculate like on her vagina or which she didn't want it or on her very nice dress that she would now have to dry clean. You know, it's like a, it was, there was this sense of like um, ownership and punishment, hmm. like a resentment towards the women for reminding them that they were engaging in something that they were being coerced to. So the, the question that you asked me is about the, the happy hooker myth. And I will say that based on my research, previous research, there are women out there who appear based on what they say, their accounts, the journal, uh, or the blogs that they write, that they are doing it because they want to, you know, and that they said, usually, and I found some of them in my um in the online communities, but usually these women who work independently, you know, they can charge a lot of money, you know, like they charge, they're very, there are all of these parameters of how they do what they do, you know, it's like you can charge a lot more than the average woman that are reviewed, reviewed on these communities. Um, and they have very clear, clear boundaries. And the men, based on what they write, it sounds like they follow those boundaries, but those were very, very rare. And um, I remember very few of them. But the, the thing that is very interesting about these online communities is that the issue that the sex buyers had was boundaries, you know? It's like a woman, for example, would say, I do X, Y, C, sex act. But the men... Either they wanted them to perform all of this sex act in a particular way, with a particular behavior and manner, or it bothered them to say, for example, the woman said that she would engage in vaginal sex, but don't touch my arm. Like the boundaries would not seem to be kind of like logical based on what you and I would think, but, for, but there were boundaries that the women would put. Like, for example, I don't want you to touch my arm. Like, don't touch my hair. Don't ruin my makeup, you know? And it's like, you would think, well, but you're having vaginal sex with a, with a sex fire. It's like, what does it matter? It's like that, well, but she's setting a boundary, which is the important thing for her. 
But even though the men would be allowed to do whatever sex act they wanted, like they, I want vaginal sex, even though the women would do that, the fact that that woman said, don't touch my arm, it would bother them. You know, even though it's not directly connected to like, you're getting the sex act that you want. But the fact that she said no to one thing, that would upset them. Interesting. Um, do you have a, like a cohort, a PhD cohort? Are you working on this all by yourself? Do you have people who are who you get to like bounce things off of or, you know, how's that in the academic sphere? Well, um, I'm kind of a loner, um, PhD wise, because I started my PhD, I think most PhD students at the University of Bristol tend to start either in late August or early September. I'm not, I'm not sure, I really am not. But I got to the UK in the middle of November. So I, so by the time that I started, I was essentially on my own. So whereas other people, I think they had like group um, conversations with staff members and stuff. I had to do all of that on my own. Um, and I remember, I mean, like any immigrant, on a new environment or when you start a new job, you know, it's like you want to get to know the people there. And I invited some people for coffee and stuff, but it's almost as if I got to the UK. I had a couple of weeks of sort of like, Oh, this new city, you know, it's like, I have, I have no family in the UK. So I had no family. I had no friends. The only person that I knew um, in the UK when I, in Bristol, when I got there was my supervisor. Dr. Williamson, um, but I was in this stage of like this new city and, and and look at this building, it's so beautiful, the university, and I would walk around, but with that sense of like, oh, I'm alone, I'm completely alone in this place, and then it's almost like immediately after that, then everything began, so, mm. so no, I don't, I don't have a cohort. Okay, so when you say everything began, um, for people who don't know, uh, what happened? What what started happening? Well, um, so I'm a writer. I write about women's rights. And I am a campaigner. I campaign on women's rights as well. And I have campaigned on women's rights when I was doing my master's degree at Oregon State. I remember that I campaigned for the Equal Rights Amendment. And I did a lot of fun banking and I did a lot of like leafleting and it was so much fun. But we wanted to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in the UK, um, in, in the United States. And we did, in Oregon. And we did manage to get that. So when I go to the UK, I just do my thing, which is I, I, I continue to speak about women's rights. And at that point, there were conversations happening about a proposed modification of a law relating to gender. Um, and it was, it's called the Equal, it's called the Gender Recognition Act 2004. And the proposals would conflict in a way with another piece of legislation called the Equality Act 2010. So I decided, well, this is my area, not only personally based on my interests and the things that I care about, but also academically, you know, 
my bachelor's, I have a minor in women and gender studies. My master's degree is in women, gender, and sexuality studies. My PhD is at the Center for Gender and Violence. So naturally, I assume, obviously, I have a place in conversations about gender because this is my entire training, not only academically, but also professionally, like every job that I have had has been in the women's sector, particularly in shelter work, refuge work. Um, so I decided to jump right in. And um, how was it? I heard about a conference about violence in pornography that was taking place in Gloucester. And I went to this conference and I didn't know anyone. That was like weeks after I got to, I got to the UK. And I go to this conference and I met some women. And among the people that I met there was a woman who was organizing a meeting for the feminist campaigning group, Women's Place UK. And she was the Bristol organizer. So she, you know, she was essentially, she was kind of teaching me like English, swear words and stuff like it was really funny you know we were just like having these conversations very general knowledge and stuff and, and bonding over the fact that we both care about women's rights and one day she just sort of mentioned you know and i'm i'm the organizer for the wpuk bristol meeting and and everything's going fine we have the venue we have everything we're just missing a share and then like, she looked at me and i look at her <laughs> and um and then I, like, she just sort of goes, you write for Feminist Current. Do you want to be our share? <laughs> and then I said, yeah, you know, I, love, I was very excited about that. And, and yeah, I imagined, I know that there has been some, there are people who don't want to have public policy conversations about gender. I am more of that. But I wasn't anticipating um, the level of vitriol that it would generate. So within a couple of days of announcing, the campaign announcing that I was going to be the chair of this meeting, uh, trans activist students at the University of Bristol, particularly one who was at that point a member of the Center for Gender and Violence Research, so a colleague of mine, um, decided to disseminate, just start this campaign of vilification and defamation, claiming that by participating in this meeting, I was causing harm to trans people and that I was obviously a horrible wicked, according to these people. Um, and in my mind, I was horrified. You know, I had, I had just gotten to the UK and you sort of had this perception that like, like the first couple of weeks that you get to a different country you just you kind of float in the air you know you don't have your feet on the ground so I saw this thing emerge and it was hundreds of people were involved and they were disseminating this open letter and all of these social media things and they were sharing that in different universities in the UK and they were they, they involved my center and they were trying to put pressure on the center to sort of pressure me to not participate in the event and to cancel the meeting. And it became that started a two year long process in which it just never stopped, you know. Um, the targeting by trans activist students 
at the University of Bristol. According to them, because of my feminist campaigning, it, it just, it became acceptable that, of course, you can target people and bully, bully women and harass women if they hold political opinions on gender that you don't agree with. Um, and I thought that it was unacceptable because the policy said that that was unacceptable. So I filed a student complaint to the University of Bristol saying like, this is happening to me. The policies say that this is unacceptable. I study gender. This is about gender. This is a public policy issue. I am studying public policy. I need some help. I went to the University of Bristol because I wanted some help. And what ended up happening is that the university created a process. I didn't knew it back then, but after it was done, I realized that they created a two year long process that was essentially focused on how to manage from a public relation uh, perspective, how to manage what was happening to me, to Raquel, as opposed to how can we help Raquel, you know, and, and they create, <laughs> They allege now that they were investigating um, this targeting by these trans activist students and that they were taking it very seriously and that this is unacceptable. And they started a disciplinary process against <clears throat> some, eventually one of the trans activist students who were involved. And the charges were, among them there were others, um, bullying, harassment, and unacceptable behavior based on their policies. Um, and they would open the disciplinary procedures and then the, the trans activist students would target the university and try to intimidate the university. And like the very grown adult people that they are, the university would like back down. And they would like cancel the hearing and they would do it again. And the trans activists would just go nuts about it and start a social media doing what they do, you know, uh, with their social media campaigns. And then the university would also like sort of retrieve. And then they would do it again. And then they would also retreat. And it's like eventually, like, what is the point of what you're doing? You're essentially the process that they created enable the trans activist students to target me more efficiently because all along while this was happening they kept saying to me like don't say anything this is all confidential like it is important it is paramount that you protect this process and in order to protect the process you have to be quiet about it um and at the moment i thought that this was I trusted these people, so I trusted this was true, and that the purpose of confidentiality was to protect the process, but eventually what ended up happening in the end is that they said, oh no, no, no. well, number one, there is no bullying, everything's fine, nothing happened here. Um, the confidentiality was only meant to protect the bully. Um, and I was, at one point I was cross-examined by the barrister, the police barrister, right? Um, so 
sorry about that. <laughs> sorry about that. So, so yeah, amongst the things that happen, I'm sorry that I'm not telling you. Like, I, I, I just had to go over it over and over. Um, okay. No, that's okay. So, sorry, what? No, that's okay. You know, tell it however you want to tell it. Yeah. So, amongst the things that happened is that the university never asked any questions of the person that they were, the student that they were allegedly investigating, but the university did ask me a lot of questions and they allowed the student, the, the student's barrister to also ask me questions. Um, and it was the most bizarre thing, one of the most bizarre meetings in my life because I was being asked about my feminist views and, and in my ideas, you know, and coming from the Dominican Republic, you go to the United Kingdom thinking that, you know, this is advanced, you know, this is very intelligent people and, and the system, it works better, institutionality is different. And I'm sitting in this room surrounded by lawyers um, and by my bully, you know, and I am being asked about my feminist views, among them the belief that women are human beings independent from men, you know? So he just, he felt very dystopian um, while that process was going on. And it all ended with the university essentially washing their hands of the whole process and saying, um, there was no bullying, confidentiality was meant to protect the bully. They said that they had to terminate the disciplinary process for reasons unrelated to the merits of my case. And and yeah, sort of dismissing the whole thing as some sort of odd episode. Mm -hmm. um, and what bothers me the most about it all is that I'm not a lawyer. I went to law school when I was in the Dominican Republic and I got halfway through, but I'm not a lawyer and my job is not to implement policies at the University of Bristol. I was a student and my job was to focus on my studies. But what happened to me was that I ended up being in a position in which I had to do the job of a lawyer because the people who were actually trained in law decided that it was more important to find ways to protect the bully and to circumvent their own policies than to actually take their own policies seriously. And that is something that I deeply resent because the whole time that I, it's almost like I was carrying the entire process on my shoulders you need to take this seriously, this is important, your policy here says this, this is the evidence of this happening. And it's almost like I was getting no pay, no one was paying for, for this, but I was getting no pay, but I was doing the job of the secretary's office. And the secretary's office is just mainly lawyers, you know, just a bunch of university lawyers who are trained in education law, who are trained in the Equality Act, and they knew that my rights were being violated, whereas I was just a student who had just gotten to this country, and 
I had to become an expert on how to defend myself. I thought that I, at that point, I thought that I was defending myself from the trans activist students, but I realized eventually that I was, I also had to defend myself now from the institution that has a duty of care to me. So I apologize, it's a downer. <laughs> it's not um, easy to process and I feel kind of drained talking about it, but that's, that's the thing that happened. Yeah, I can only imagine how draining this is. I mean, you know, like I said to you before, I feel a great deal of solidarity with you. Um, we have, I guess I feel like I've been through a little fraction, a tiny, tiny fraction of what you've been through, but this prolonged experience must take such a toll on you. And one thing that keeps coming up is what I can see is victim blaming. This keeps coming up with people I interview who have been bullied by trans activists, by gender identity extremists. Um, this victim blaming, so their friends or the people who are supposed to defend them will blame the person, the woman usually. Uh, you know, oh, well, did you say, did, did you tweet something? Did you post something? Did you, do you believe that women are adult human females? It's like, I mean, you're describing that there was like this inquisition of you, this like McCarthyist, it's like, are you a communist? Do you believe a woman is an adult human female? It's, I mean, it's scary. And then the victim blaming thing, it's also something that you must be familiar with around sexual violence and rape. Um, yeah, I mean, ugh, I, it, it's, it's horrible. The, the the thing that happens and the victim blaming that happens and the pile on yeah because essentially while this was ongoing i couldn't say anything because the university said that i couldn't say anything but the narrative going on from january 2018 until maybe mid 2019 or a little bit later was that they were persecuted for their existence or whatever you know it's like it's all it's all a projection every time something happens i just i remind people everything is a projection just let it go it's all a projection on you but it was a projection that i was this violent bigot who was causing harm to people and and you expect the victim blaming from an abuser you know it's like that's how abusers behave they pretend that this is all this is all your fault you know yeah i wouldn't hit you if you didn't misbehave you know it's that type of narrative you expect that from an abuser but i did not expect that from my own institution you know yeah and part of me really the thing that i really struggled with was but why should I remain in an institution that I consider to be abusive? And it's difficult, like I'm not going to pretend that it's easy, but number one, I haven't done a single thing wrong. And number two, I have to remind myself, you know what, Raquel, when you, when I got on that plane to go study at the University of Bristol, I went with a purpose, you know, I'm going to go there and I'm going to do a PhD at that center and I love my center and my center is just those women are brilliant and 
thoughtful and they are engaged and they genuinely care. It's not like an abstract gender center, you know, it's like it's an actual living, breathing women who care very deeply about what's happening to women and girls um, and boys and men through masculinity as well. But as I was saying, like I had to remind myself, you went with the purpose of going to that center. So, so why should I allow anything or anyone to deter, to deter me from that? But there's that, that struggle of like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm still here. But if I leave, then the same thing that the university has been doing to me, they're going to continue to do with other people. And the fact that they did it to me when I had the full support of not only my supervisors, but also my entire center. Um, when I had media coverage of my case, the fact that they did that to me with those um, variables says to me that they've been doing similar things to a lot of other people. So I feel very strongly that, no, no, you have to stay and you have to just win the case. So yeah, you chose to to fight back and you do now have legal representation, which is good. I think people would be glad to hear that. Um, so so where are you at in the case and when do you expect to see a resolution? We don't know, um, but we are now in court. Um, I don't know you send papers and they send papers. <laughs> yeah. and, I can, and I see on your GoFundMe, you keep updating, oh, the university has asked for an extension. They've asked for an extension on their extension and they've asked for an extension on the extensions extension. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, in any, yeah, they do that kind of stuff and they spend essentially two years just doing those things. It's like, I remember at one point they said, they needed three people to do a disciplinary hearing. All three people live in the UK. And they would say, well, it's taken nine months for us to get all three people on their schedule when they're all free at the same time. It's like three people who live in the UK cannot find a single day in nine months to do this. You know, if you took it seriously, you would just get it done, you know? Um, but, but in any case, we are in court. I have an excellent team of lawyers who are exceptionally smart. So I feel it's a massive weight off my shoulders to realize that I have been advocating for myself for the past two years. But ever since they came along, it's like, no, no. It's like, that's their stress. They, yeah. they can help me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not only my worry now it's like they are paid to look after my best interests so that's nice um and obviously the university has their own lawyers and um they're fine um so now we are waiting for something that happens before the hearings um i don't think that we will get a resolution in the next couple of months. I think it's going to be one of those. I mean, you look at what's happening to Maya and she 
has a hearing in April, but there's a preliminary hearing and then it's going to take forever for the other, you know, so it's one of those things which you just have to, we have this saying in the Dominican Republic, um, it's sort of a, a colloquial term. You have to bathe yourself in patience. Hmm. And that's what I have to do. Just bathe yourself in patience. How I will get there Spanish? eventually. What? How do you say it in Spanish? Uh, tienes que bañarte, darte un baño de paciencia. So it's like you just have to, you know, I think what has happened to me is unfair. I, I also think that what happened to me is unlawful. I feel... I breathe easier and sleep easier now that I know that this is a matter of justice that is outside of the university process as opposed to the stress, the anxiety, feeling mortified, feeling like completely trapped and I felt like I couldn't breathe while this process was happening internally within the university, like that's done. And I'm just grateful that that's over and done. Because now whatever happens, even if I lose, I, I hope that I don't lose, but even if I lose, then, then that is something that is independent to, to these machinations and the sort of like lying and the, it felt very like I was dealing with someone who was abusing their power and it felt a little bit like he was, um, was very unequal. I'm not a lawyer, but here I am having to sort of like find tools and arguments to sort of fight with lawyers. That's not fair. Yeah. But now it is fair because we all have lawyers now. <laughs> yeah. 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 When I was reading about your case, I'm just thinking this is a David and Goliath situation. And, um, you know, the little tiny guy versus the huge, powerful, I mean, the university, right? They have so many resources, almost unlimited resources. And, um, it's really good to hear that you have a little bit of that weight off your shoulders. Have you been able to get back a little bit to normal? I know a little bit about the psychological toll that it takes and I've been hearing about it from my various guests. Um, but that is very real, that psychological toll. So are you, are you a bit out of it? You said, you know, you're sleeping better and breathing easier. That's, that's really good to hear. I mean, I look back on, so the process, the internal university process, ended on December 19th of last year, right? And I look back at how things were last year and I was distraught and sad and devastated. You don't want to dwell too much on how bad it was because you know that you're dealing with people who are doing it because of that sense of joy that I'm happy that I inflicted that. Yeah on you, you know, um, like similar to the situation that you experience in your workplace, you know, those people who wanted you out, like they felt a sense of satisfaction knowing that they were causing you harm, you know? Um, so you don't want to dwell too much on it, but everything got better. Essentially, once I took the power back and had lawyers, got instructed lawyers, you know, before yeah. that, it was... It was that David and Goliath situation in which you just feel 
this is not my element. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know what to do. I, who can help me? I had no crowd justice. I didn't know that there was support at the other side. Um, it's that element of helplessness. But now things are in a stage in which I feel um, the case is a part of my life, but then I have other parts. And it's like the, the balance is, obviously, you know, it's like I'm a daughter, I'm a sister, I'm an aunt, you know, I'm all of those things, you know, and I'm a student and I'm a writer, a campaigner, all that. And then I have a case as opposed to before in which it felt like I have this process that is consuming the whole of my life. Now it just becomes the case is one of the facets of my life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So to take it back a little bit, did you know about the sort of war, the gender war going on before all this happened? Were you at all tuned into that? Like, had you heard the term turf before? I'm trying to think when was the first time that I heard that term. So I did a master's degree in at Oregon State in women, gender, and sexuality studies. So I felt, in a sense, I feel that I was fortunate that I was able to analyze the topic from a theoretical perspective when I was doing my master's degree. And I'm very grateful that I had, I've always had excellent professors, excellent um, academics around me who were very sort of compassionate and coming from a place of trying to help and educate and but in a way that was very I'm treating you with respect you know um so when I was doing my master's degree it was um well you know Oregon because you're in uh, San Francisco but it's, it's very much kind of a lot of the viewpoints are not viewpoints that I shared, but I felt grateful that I was in an environment in which we were able to discuss these matters openly and with a very sort of adult kind of conversations. But there were elements of the vitriol that was to come. You know, there were little episodes of, you know, students seeking to target ex-professor because of ex-belief, you know, but then the response at that point would be all of the professor would rally around that professor, you know, or they would sort of create these little campaigns to discredit the women's center because the women's center is exclusionary because it's about women as opposed to, you know, every single other department in academia, which is completely centered on men. Um, but then the response at that point from the community would be, well, this is the reason why that center exists. This is why it's important to talk about women. This is why, you know, it felt like it was a very vocal minority, but you could see that it was getting traction. And this was about 2014, 2016, by the time I left. Um, so I was familiar with where this was going, but, I couldn't anticipate, especially like the violent aspect of it, what really troubled me the most. And one of the reasons why I decided to speak at that woman's place meeting was because I was witnessing how violence against women was becoming normalized in political discourse. 
through the use of turf, through the use of all of these rape and death threats and all that kind of stuff. And, and I felt a sense of responsibility that is like, well, actually, I am trained on essentially gender studies. This is my field. This is my, 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 areas, my area of expertise. If I'm not able to speak out about gender, about the normalization of violence against women when it comes to public policy in a democratic society, then it's like, who, who is it, you know? So I felt just that there was something very dangerous becoming, people were sort of becoming immune to like, oh, so now they're targeting this woman and now they're targeting this other woman. And, and I think it's because of the countless women who have been raising their voices and speaking out about how unacceptable it is to target women that women like you and me can now say, this is happening to me. And instead of just getting complete um, denunciation or even being ignored by our peers, now there's actually a balance of people saying, actually, you shouldn't have fired Sasha White. Actually, you shouldn't have bullied Raquel, you know? And that's because little by little, like, I think for a, lot of, for a long time, women witnessed what was happening and wouldn't really voice it. But then the more women speak out, then you see another woman who's speaking out. Then you see another woman who's speaking. Then you see another woman. And that has gotten to a point in which actually now you have a lot of women who are saying, no, this is unacceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maya Forstater made a post on Twitter about sort of the, the difference between the reaction, the initial reaction to her case and the initial reaction to my firing. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's the women who came before, they are the reason that my case got any attention in the in the positive way as opposed to just attention from the activists who were who, who started to pile on me and then there was this outpouring of support that I didn't expect but what but changed everything for me I mean I can't even state how you know incredible that was for me and and materially how it made a difference um but yeah, it's it's what the the Maya Forstaters went through and 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 what you are going through and I I just hope that there is some shift. Do you think that there is any shift going on because that is that is being talked about a bit now. I wanted to ask you before that like did you receive support in your own circle like mm. with your family and friends? Yeah, well, um my friends are amazing. I uh, am really lucky that I have friends who, who get it and are on the same page and are super, super supportive. My family too, my immediate family has been my biggest defenders and supporters. Um, and then, you know, it's my extended family. There's There's been a bit of weirdness. Um, a little bit of weirdness. A little bit of weirdness to sort of understate it. I, my, um, one someone in my family is uh thinks that I'm a turf like a nasty bigot and even posted about it publicly so it's caused problems in my family and um that's that's really hard that's probably probably the worst lasting thing that's happening um yeah how about you in terms of the personal the people in your life how have they been They've been excellent, you know, it's like, I, I wonder if I'm a little sheltered because like 
the vast majority of my family doesn't even speak English, you know? My parents, obviously, they don't know what the word torp even means, you know? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, so it was kind of weird to explain the dynamics of the whole thing, but I, I've never experienced any sort of... I mean, my family, I don't know if you know this, but like half my family is Jehovah's Witness. Okay. And then the other half of my family is Roman Catholic. So we are used to being in an environment in which you have people who believe different things. And it's like, that's very fundamental. You know, it's like, we're talking about like your soul and what happens to you when you die. You know, like we're in the Christmas holidays and you cannot, because they don't believe in that, like you cannot call your grandma and be like, Merry Christmas or because they don't believe in any of that. Um, but yeah, it's like religious belief, like that's very fundamental, but we always manage to sort of, I've never witnessed a fight within my family because of religion, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and on the contrary, a lot of my family, they don't agree with my feminist positions on a number of issues. For example, reproductive justice issues or other stuff. Um, they don't agree with me, but they've always been very supportive of like, oh, that's Raquel, and she's out there, and she's getting her master's degree, and she's campaigning for women's rights. And it's like this weird thing, which like personally, they may not agree with my stance on X political issue, but because they're my family and they love me as a person, they've always been very supportive. So I feel very fortunate, personally, that it's like, even though I went through this process, which you could see how draining it was for me personally. I feel very fortunate that I've had this bubble around me of people who just, they just love me for who I am. And and I've never doubted the love of my family, the love of my friends, you know. Um, I haven't lost, lost a single friend, you know. The ones who don't agree with me, there's this element of like, let it be or like tolerate it or like you believe this i believe this sort of thing so i think there's something very bizarre about this viewpoint in which you can control what other people think and if you abuse them and bully them enough then you can sort of create this sort of monolithic society in which everyone thinks like you're not healthy personally but that's also like not healthy politically you know it's like that's not democracy that's dictatorship you know um But I hear, you hear from people who are like, they fought with their sisters or they fought with their daughters and stuff. My heart goes out to them because I think that the only reason why I often kind of think of other, I wonder if other people in my situation would have the stamina to continue carrying on at that same institution that I am currently suing if it were not for the fact that I have such a strong uh, nucleus, you know, like my family is such a strong um, core. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I imagine the same for you. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think, you know, even at the time when it was all happening, it was like, I knew, I, well, I didn't know what, how I would be if I didn't have my, my close family around me and my friends because I kind of knew it was like, if I didn't have this support, this level of support, which was really, really strong, I think I would just be 
broken. I don't know what I would. And then I started to understand why do people capitulate to the mob? Why do people get up and apologize and, and um, you know, recant their views? There was no part of me that changed my mind, but I could definitely see how if the people in my family say we're like, you know, the people around me every day were like, oh, well, why did you tweet that? Or why, why are you even on Twitter and, and doing this stuff? And you shouldn't be doing that. I think it would have just broken me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I started dating this guy who ended up being my boyfriend and he's not an expert on the topic. You know, it's like, he's not going to read you the Equality Act and stuff, but it's like, he got the gist of like, well, yeah, I mean, it's because essentially this is common sense. You and I are talking when you talk, when you, when a baby is born, you, the vast majority of the time like you can you know the sex of the baby you know the sex from the time that it is in the womb you know and 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 we're talking about women's rights in a way that is not the the narrative constructed about how violent and vitriolic our discourse is it is only a way to mask how common sense our approach mm -hmm. and our ideas are. Mm -hmm. But I, I remember that it's like I would have these conversations with him and he would just be like, oh, so women's place are the women who are saying that women should have right to sports, you know, that it's like just for women. And he's like, and, he, and, and I love that perspective because when you talk to people who are not in the topic, who are not involved in like activism or campaigning, you just talk to people who have jobs as, you know, um, consultancy in like tech firms and stuff like like oh yeah normal people understand that we're talking about common sense stuff you know there's no it feels as if um, there's something very dangerous happening on this topic because essentially a very small minority of people who feel very strongly about the fact that there should be no debate about this topic are creating the illusion that it is shared by the majority of the population when number one the majority of the population does not even know that stating that sex is real is somehow controversial and number two if you ask them they would tell you sex is real you know mm -hmm. so so yeah it's i think we're going out of that stage of it's a little bit maybe like how like a rocket when you launch it and there's like all of this turbulence it feels you asked me about if i felt that things were cha changing i think that we're a little bit out of that turbulent stage and now we're getting to a point in which like the conversations can be had the sad thing is that in order for all of society to make it out of that turbulent stage a lot of women like you and me had to go through a lot of stuff yeah. and that should never have happened, you know? And if more people have spoken out at the right time, some of, some of it could have been prevented and, and that really, it hurts, you know, to know that actually, it's actually not on me as student to sort of take it on myself to say like, we have to have these conversations about policy regarding a law that is, another country's laws, you know, in the Dominican Republic, we don't have sex-based rights. We don't have sex discrimination yet. Um, hopefully soon we will. Um, but you know, it's like we don't, like I'm fighting for rights that actually are not 
affecting the women and girls in my country, my people. There should have been other people who should have stepped up and that didn't happen. And I wonder if things would have been easier for me. Um, if we all sort of had the social consciousness of like, well, actually, this is unacceptable. Let's all sort of step up. Yeah. And, and make sure that things don't get really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I never, you know, growing up as a kid and a teenager and, and a young adult, I, I never knew that. I, I kind of thought like, in at least in, in my country, that the biggest feminist battles are behind us and that the women have suffered. They've been beaten down. They've been jailed. They've been, you know, um, they've been shouted at and called names. And now we've, you know, I, I never was naive enough to think we've achieved everything we need, um, even here. But, uh, you know, people compare this movement to the suffragettes who were, you know, beaten down um, and called all kinds of things, nasty women, basically along those lines. Um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a surprise, I guess, to kind of, to realize that like, okay, we're in this, this is one of those moments and movements of feminism where we're really fighting. This isn't just like, oh, you know, Teen Vogue, let's, uh, let's all, whatever, whatever it is they write, I don't want to, the, the thing on the tip of my tongue is kind of dirty, so I won't say it, but yeah, um, yeah, this is like, a, this is, maybe the the epicenter of kind of like a modern uh huge feminist war battle yeah it's yeah and i remember sort of when i had my feminist awakening you know like i've always kind of been like this you know since i was a very small child but when i sort of started realizing well there's something about being a woman, being born female, that sort of shapes your experiences. When I started to look at that, like you read about the battles and the struggle and the harassment and the abuse that these women endure, and you just think of them like, oh, those women were fantastic and, and they're so inspirational. And, and then you find yourself in a moment like this in which, what are our arguments? Our arguments are, sex is real and it is a component that has an impact on the lives of people. Women have a right to female-only prisons and no woman should be raped in, the, in a female prison by a male prisoner. Um, women have a right to, you know, um, statistics segregated based on their sex, you know, women have a right to have no crime recorded by a man be attributed to a woman because that would harm statistics in a very meaningful way. Uh, we're talking about the importance of female-only sports so that women and girls can have a right to compete on an equal level, um, on a level playing field. Um, we, we need to be able to have medical research, scientific research that analyzes sex as a um, biological variable because we understand that research that assumes that men and women are the same tends to obscure the actual symptoms and the experiences of women in female bodies. And it is a, it, it is a matter of life and death that we take sex into account because sex is very material. It is in every single cell of our bodies. Like in the UK, the law states that sex is real. And think about how bizarre it is that you have a matter of law, um, something that is inscribed in law, 
that activists fought very hard to make sure that people were not able to talk about it. Imagine if it was about any other topic, you know, you have some tax issue that is fundamental to the rights of everyone, but through abuse and smear campaigns and firing people and abusing people, we want to make sure that no one is able to talk about that tax issue. If it happened, if they, if they attempted to do it on an issue like taxes, it would get no traction because taxes affect men as well. But because this is something in which the disadvantaged are almost exclusively women and girls, it got to a point where the abuse became normalized, you know, and to this day you have people um, using turf as the slur that it is and that type of stuff and trying to get women sacked because they wrote this or because they said this. And there's an element of it that is very um, colonial or it's about owning, it's about the ownership of women, it's about the ownership of female people. I remember when everything uh, started at the University of Bristol, when you read the subtext that was being written by these students at the University of Bristol, um, it was like they couldn't comprehend the fact that this woman who has just gotten to this country from the Dominican Republic, a very poor country, uh, who has just gotten to this country from a global south country, who is not a white woman, who does not speak English as her first, first language, how dare this woman have ideas that I have not approved of? You know, there's an element of it that is very much about sort of um, trying to mold women particularly so that we become some sort of vessels for the ideas of other people and this idea that we all have a gender identity that is akin to our soul that is exists in every human being from the moment that we are born like that is the weird thing that is the odd concept that you have to enforce by through force because it is not logical you know so there's something very autocratic and there's something very top down like an imposition in the fact that these theories emanate from the global north from elite universities like the university of bristol from the top universities in the global north in the united states in France, in the United Kingdom, we create these ideas that are only discussed among people who get to go to those top academic institutions. And then you enforce them in policy so that everyone has to abide by them. But no one has a right to question it. And it's like, that's so undemocratic that even if you couldn't care less about women's rights, just because you care about democracy, you should be involved, you know? Yeah. Because it's very aristocratic in a way. I create the rules and the rules apply to you, but you have no right to question me or to question the rules that apply to you, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's something also really insidious about the fact that um, this whole movement has written in on the coattails of gay rights and that obfuscates it for so many people they can't separate like 
that you can, that there's an issue here, like there's a genuine issue, a problem with the ideas being put forth by trans ideology, gender identity ideology, but that it's not homophobic to say that. Do you encounter that a lot? Because I do. Well, but, but at its core, the whole viewpoint is homophobic because it is saying that same-sex attractions does not exist. You know, it's like that the history of the gay rights movement was to say, in lesbian rights, was to say that people have a right to be attracted to their, to their sex, you know? But if sex does not exist, then what happens to that political struggle? So it's a way of... Well, in countries like in the UK or in the US, where there is mass acceptance and legal protections for gays and lesbians and bisexual people, it's a way to sort of masquerade the true political purpose of what is a very political project, you know, the, 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 the political project of, of trying to impose gender identity policies in all countries around the world. Um, it's a way to mask that true intention into something more popular. But it only takes a couple of seconds for you to put two and two together. Same-sex attraction is about sex. You have to recognize sex um, in order to acknowledge political rights based on sexual orientation. Right, right. Because otherwise, what are you saying? You're saying that a lesbian is a woman who's attracted to someone wearing a dress or wearing girl clothes or, or who has long hair or some kind of marker like that. It's, it's no, it's what you said. It's very simple. It's attraction based on their sex. And it's so insidious because I don't know if you saw this, but every time it happens every six months or something, a woman is caught sort of quote unquote pretending to be part of a culture that maybe does not, maybe it's not her culture, you know. This week it was um, a yoga instructor who pretended to be from Spain. Mm -hmm. Six months ago it was an academic who pretended to be either black or Hispanic. And then you see this sort of vitriol and this sense of rage how dare this woman pretend to be something that she isn't this is about appropriating something that is not yours this is about appropriating identity and it is almost as if through creating this person this performance of outrage and 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 fame and feigning like anger and disbelief that any woman would ever try to blur lines that should not be blurred. It is almost as if that is being used as a substitute to not have to address structural problems, you know, because actually if, if instead of creating social media storms, you focus on addressing structural inequalities that affect the black community, that affect working class people, that affect minority, minoritized groups. You know, if you put that energy and those efforts there, then things would actually change. But it is almost as if through the globalization of identity politics, 
what is becoming universalized is this very veneer level um, form of social activism, you know? And I don't think that is, I don't think that that is a coincidence, you know? You had the same sort of episodes happen through uh, when, when nihilism became very popular, you know, it's like women were beginning to have more positions of power, minority people began to have more positions of politi in politics and, and in comes relativism, you know, and everything becomes relative and it's like you can make like categorical statements. So I think that on a broader level is about disarticulating social justice as a structural analysis and substituting that with a surface level form of non-activism. And in that sort of analysis, that's where our topic fits in. The gender identity issue fits as a part of that. Mm. Wow, that is fascinating. Do you think, I mean, because there's all these corporations who support who, who say trans women are women, trans men are men, non-binary people are non-binary, and they are using this identity politics or maybe they're propagating it. What does it do for them? What's the, what's the corporate profit motive? Well, you don't have to do anything. You just have to tweet about it. Yeah. You know, it's like, all you have to do, I mean, you know, you're really um, down in the ditch, you know, when the Bank of England is like putting your colors and changing their Twitter handles and stuff, you know, it's, um, you can't have it both ways. You cannot both claim to have the complete support of all of the establishment institutions and also claim to be the most downrotten people on this planet because the people in this planet who are actually downrotten, who don't have support, who are completely marginalized by all of these systems, they are not heard, they are not listened to. No one gives you a trigger warning when they tell you that they're about to abuse your rights to, I don't know, an education or your rights to fucking food, you know? Um, <clears throat> so I think that for corporations and institutions, it's considered to be a form of um it's a pr exercise you know it's a pr exercise and i think that as campaigners we always have to be very wary of the fact that you want to get awareness you want people to be sensi um, sensible to the struggle that you're fighting for but you don't want your struggle to become tokenized you know and i obviously cannot speak for um trans people, um, but I think if I were a trans rights campaigner, I would seriously ponder what do I gain through this sort of performative shows of support, mm -hmm. because it would be more effective if I actually focus my energy, instead of like lobbying the Bank of England to change their colors, I would put my energy in trying to address structural inequality, you know, housing discrimination or violence, um, actual violence, not like words or violence kind of violence. Um, I would focus my energy on that. And I think that 
there is an element of this issue that is not driven by actual trans people themselves, but by people, particularly men, who see this as a as a as a as a cudgel or as a as a wedge that they can have an in on to be able to drive a different agenda. You know, it's like all the people who pile on you and piled on me, number one, the vast majority of them are not actually trans. They are people mostly on the left who think that, who have found a very convenient way to channel misogyny in a way that it is now socially acceptable. They couldn't call you a cunt, but they could call you a turf, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And they couldn't say, the people who target me and who bullied me at the University of Bristol, they couldn't say, Raquel is some immigrant who is uneducated and ignorant and who needs to be put in her place. But they could say, Raquel is a turf who is harming trans people. And if you look at the narrative underlying all of these messages, what they really want to say is those women need to be put in their place, maybe for different reasons, maybe because you spoke out about something that you should not have spoken out. Maybe some people in your workplace expected you to be very compliant and very sort of docile and to be sort of like a caricature of what they imagine women to be. And maybe the people who targeted me thought that I should be more bendable or... Some people on the left in the UK have this preconception of like, if you're from X community, then I own X community and they should behave in a certain way. Um, If you're from this race or ethnic minority, then you should behave in a certain way. And obviously that only comes from a position of superiority. And I think that I cannot say with the words that I want to say it, but if I use this sort of progressive language, then I can masquerade that. And that happens and that has always happened. The problem becomes when a workplace like yours or an academic institution like mine decide we will acquiesce acquiesce to that type of dynamic. We will legitimize those sort of narratives. We will legitimize the fact that students who, like my, the bully who got the ball rolling on everything that happened to me at the University of Bristol, um, who the university was allegedly investigating, that person went to the London School of Economics, which is a very fancy university. And they went to the University of Cambridge, which is also another very fancy university. And then they ended up at the University of Bristol, you know, which is very fancy, uh, a top 10 university. All of my education, and I've been very privileged compared to like most of the people in my country, I have been extremely privileged. But all of my education has been state university. You know, when I went to law school, I went to the local state university here in the Dominican Republic um, to go to law school my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, everything, you know, 
has been state education. And there's an element of it that is about making a mockery about actual inequality. That is about making a mockery about actual people who are like based on their talents, based on how smart they are, how talented they are, how driven they are. There's an element of jealousy and resentment and envy that cannot be channeled transparently. Therefore, it is channeled, it is channeled through, well, but she's the bigot, so she deserves it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any kind of a message or words that you would say to young girls who are, who are starting to deal with this? Because some of them are watching my channel and I've, I've started to hear from some of them, you know, they'll, they'll write me like, I'm a closeted lesbian, I'm 17, and I, I know that if I, uh, if, if my friends knew that I was a TERF, they wouldn't be friends with me, or it would cause this big drama, I would be canceled, um, and I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's who I worry about a lot in these days. Um, do you have, like, any words for them of, like, you know, to, for, for really young women right now going through all this, or maybe even say? who are just thinking about it? What would I say? Yeah. Um, I would say that, you know, all of this is really crazy making. Like it's, it makes you think that you're going insane. Um, and it can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance. It can make you feel there's this reality that you know is the reality, but then you're being asked to affirm something that you can see with your own eyes isn't true. That can make you a little bit crazy. Um, I mean, the best advice I have right now is kind of like, take a step back, just like on a personal level, it's not like political advice, but just to, for them to try to depersonalize it a little bit, take a little bit of a step back, like perspective, realize that this is just a moment in history. These people are very, very wrong. You're not wrong. Um, and to try to remember that and just like have acceptance for, for the different parts of the dissonance that you're feeling. That's really nice. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I would have two things to say. And the first is um, to just like stay true to what you believe, you know, because if you don't, you will regret it. You know, it, I mean, I go to bed with a clean conscience knowing that it's like whatever it is that I do is like, I believe that. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, but yeah, like just like stay true to what you actually believe, because if if it costs you a friendship, then you have to wonder what kind of friendship that was, you know. And you and I have talked about like the the, the pain and the anxiety and the depression and the sort of feelings of distress that comes with being the subject of targeting, you know. But the flip side of that is that once you sort of center yourself in your core and make it out of that stage, then you just get this surge of, I'm so awesome. <laughs> you just feel like so empowered. And, and, and I don't know, I mean, I just feel very proud of standing my ground, you know, and like not... Um, acquiescing to things that I, I knew were not true. You know, it's like at one point 
when things were very difficult and low. I know that the university, they offered me money um, so that they could accept no liability and obviously so that that would sort of like settle the matter. That was back in um, October and December of last year. And it's like, I would feel so ashamed of myself if I had sort of agreed to their narrative. Their narrative is nothing happened. There's no bullying here. It's like, essentially you made it all off. But they gaslighted me and then they offered me money saying like, well, actually, you know, um, but I would feel like so ashamed of myself if I had agreed to be gaslighted, if I had agreed to sort of pretending that what I know is real is not real. So after you decide, well, that's not what Raquel is about, then you just get this sense of excitement and happiness to discover that it's like, shit, I am this badass woman. <laughs> <laughs> I really am this baddest woman. Um, so that's beautiful, you know. So if you're a girl, and obviously being a girl is very difficult for a number of reasons, but if you're a girl and you want to speak out and you're worried about um, and you're worried about the impact of of you standing your ground, is like make sure that you have good people around you. But just know that you're never going to regret it, you know? And, and yeah, it is true. Like, things can be bad, but then you gain this community of people and women who are, like, willing to be there with you. As you discover when you, yeah. when you went through your thing, you know, it's like you think that the world is going to end. And actually, it's like you make this jump, you make this leap, and on the other side, it's like the sisterhood is there. Um, so that's really nice. And then the second thing is kind of it's essentially what you mentioned is like take care of yourself, you know. Like I I struggled quite a lot and this obviously had a big impact on not only on my health but also on my studies, you know, academically. And I think it got to a point in which like everyone who was involved in my studies, they really were like is she going to make it? <laughs> is she not going to make it? I, I remember my, I had this blockage. Like I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And I had this blockage in my mom and like she tried everything to help me sort of like get rid of these blockages and stuff. And, but, um, but at the end of the day, it's like I made it out of that bump, but it's because throughout, like I've taken, I've, I have tried to take good care of myself. You know, if you see that you have been drinking more than usual, then like maybe quit alcohol for a bit, you know, so you can be conscious and fully aware of what's going on and very centered in yourself. If you see that your health is declining in some well, you know, it's like go for, for walks regularly, you know, it's like block off social media for sure, you know, um, just whatever it is that you need to do, but just like remember that it's like you cannot help any other woman or girl. You cannot help the cause. You know, you cannot help feminism if you yourself are um, neglecting yourself and neglecting your health. So make yourself number one. And I think, I don't know if you've noticed this, Sasha, but 
you can tell when there's women who are in this fight with us and and you can tell when someone when it gets a little bit too much and when it's getting a little bit too much mentally or psychologically and you have to reach out to a woman and be like actually you know maybe you need to take a step back or just like reconsider and stuff and that happens to all of us you know we are human but I think the biggest thing that I would encourage is to just just take very long baths you know? <laughs> just go for very long walks you know um, have people in your life who do not talk about gender honestly talk to your grandma or something yeah. <laughs> um yeah that's what i'd recommend yeah no that was really powerful um we do have to start to wrap it up but i think i could talk to you all day but um yeah just just to that to one of the really good points you made that you know it's as bad as it is to have other people mad at you and to feel like the whole world is mad at you or people are bullying you, it's so much worse to be mad at yourself. It's so much worse to have to sit with that. And once you do know that like, okay, all these other people are mad at me, I can deal with anything. Other people are mad at me. I can still do everything that I wanted to do before. I'm free. But if I am caged by my own like frustration with myself, that's, that's a different kind of prison. Um, but of course I want to also say, as you just said, right after making that point that you have to take care of yourself first, don't, don't throw yourself on to the, into the front lines too much, um, or at all, because I don't want to be on record if I, or pace yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, around the time that this was happening, like I felt like I had, because I did my master's degree and I understood the topics theoretically I felt this pressure to just convey everything that I knew in articles mm. and I wrote a large number of articles that were like long form where I explained the topic in Spanish in different it was like a series I would talk about like the gender dysphoria issue with girls and stuff or like the medicine issue like different things and I remember the weight that I felt on top of my shoulders because I thought I have all of this knowledge and I need to put it out there. And when I was done, I remember that I slept for like three days <laughs> because it was just like, I felt like the, a massive weight that was off my shoulders. It's like, I understand the urgency. It's like, you feel like the sense of urgency. I need to talk to people. I need to tell them, but it's like, yeah, you can do that, but also make sure that you don't lose your mental health in the yeah. process. Yeah. Well, where can people find your work and find you? Okay, so um, you can read more about my work at, on my website is RaquelRosarioSanchez.com and I have sections on my writing, sections on my research, and sections on my campaigning. Uh, you can find me on social media. I have, I write for a lot of publications, so you could see my writing twice a month in a Dominican newspaper called El Caribe, which has been very supportive throughout. Um, I'm at Philia, I'm the spokeswoman for Philia, I'm also on the board of trustees of Philia. Um, you can find me campaigning for Women's Place and you can also find me at the Center for Gender and Violence Research at the University. <laughs> 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 or you can find me on crowd justice and support my uh, case 
Yes, I'm going to be linking all those things here in the video and please do consider donating to Raquel's Crowd Justice. It's amazing. You've raised a lot. You said before you raised $10,000 in the first day. So that's amazing. I'm really glad people are being, uh, are, are donating and being aware of this, but there's still more, more help needed and more funds needed. So check that out. And thank you so much, Raquel. This was amazing. Thank you for having me. Yeah.